This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Welcome, everyone, in the first episode of Radar by Nextworks. It's our new podcast that we started, and we're very excited, and we want to do this every month. Our goal is to share all the cool things that we see and hear about innovation and technology, things that we think are relevant for your business to help you to become more innovative and basically stuff that makes us excited. And I'm not going to do this all by myself. I'm here with five other people, friends from Nextworks, and uh, together we're going to talk you through our insights. Uh, but first, as this is the first time, let me introduce the team to you. First of all, I have Julie here with me. Julie is the CEO of Nextworks, and she's going to talk about the future of organizations and follow trends on that perspective. So welcome, Julie. Thanks a lot, Stephen. Can't wait. And now we have Pascal, Pascal Coppens, who is one of our authors and keynote speakers at Nextworks. And his focus is China and Asia. So he's going to be our China lens here in this show. Welcome, Pascal. <laughs> and now we have, uh, <laughs> then we have Laurence. She's the director of content at Nextworks, and she's going to talk about all the evolutions that deal with the impact of technology on society and sustainability and democracy and those kind of things. So welcome, Laurence. Thank you. I'm going to be the one who always be saying, like, technology is great, but... So. <laughs> okay, we need the person like that, Laurence. <laughs> and then we have Joren. He's going to be the opposite, I think. He gets excited about all new things. He's our tech guy, our gadget guy, and he's going to you know, share all the things that excite him and where he's enthusiastic about. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, having me, Stephen. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. And then we have Peter, Peter Hinzen, co-founder of Nextworks, author, keynote speaker, and he's going to talk about innovation and strategy and geopolitics. So welcome, Peter. Thank you. Happy to be here. And we have a number of topics prepared for this month's episode. But first of all, let's be honest, we are probably the only people in the world that start a podcast in the week that all the cool kids are on Clubhouse. No one is making podcasts this week. So we thought this is a good moment to start. But I have to be honest, I have my own account at Clubhouse already. Any one of you guys have an account? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And did you try it out already? I tried it out. I mean, I have to say, I was reminded of my grandfather, who was a uh, an amateur ham radio operator. And I remember my grandfather in the back, in a little shed in the garden, you know, talking to the world on his ham radio. I have a little bit that impression when I listen to Clubhouse. Mm. And Pascal, did you try it out? Uh, no, it's blocked in China and I have a Huawei Android phone, which so it's not available. So I'm I'm really stuck here. Well, we're very sorry for you about that. I have my first room planned next week, so I'm very curious to see how it will work. What do you think, Jorin, as the tech trend guy? Is this something to stay? I love the concept, but uh, I don't believe it's going to stay. And quite honestly, it's really disappointing to say, but I have an Android phone as well. And uh, I'm seriously considering to run to the Apple store and buy me an iPhone just to try it out. But uh, unfortunately, I can't do it yet. But uh, looking from what I see now, I don't think it's going to stay. But uh, yeah, you know, this is one of these things that they are going to uh, tackle me on in about 10 years when Clubhouse is the biggest billion dollar business in the world, right? So, Joram, why did they bring out just an iPhone version? I mean, they're excluding 80% of the world, right? 
Exactly, yeah, but it makes total sense. I mean, they want to emphasize the exclusivity of the platform. And I think what better than go for Apple because uh, that's their business. And, uh, but then you have to release it on Commodore 64. That would really <laughs> be exclusive. Huh? Well, it's oh, funny yeah. because they're claiming that it's the most inclusive service uh, in there. So, I mean, exclusivity versus the inclusivity, I don't, I don't really see it yet. Within the Apple... Uh community it is very yeah. inclusive yeah but wasn't it that they wanted to scale slowly and because that there are still less iphone users than rest of the or, or is that completely wrong probably they start with apple because they know that that's still the most early adopting community for new platforms it's probably something that they've seen in uh, in research i would assume peter you're in an apple chapel can't you just fill us in on that <laughs> tactic well, I, I think I was puzzled, really, because I think uh, I'm not sure if the Apple community is the most front runner in things. I think there's an extremely hardcore Android community that is extremely open-minded and innovative. So I think, honestly, either they made a mistake because the Android version wasn't ready, or as Joran said, they wanted to find ways to make it really, really exclusive. So they only focused on one market. But uh, it's a mystery to me. Yeah, if I would take my China lens, and then I would say that uh, typically in the West, uh, you start top down, you start from exclusivity, and then you go to the volume. And uh, in China, they would definitely have started with Android, uh, because they want lots and lots and lots of people. It's the same reason that the Teslas came out was very expensive in the beginning, and then they became cheaper after a while. But uh, in China, they would just build a cheap car first, and then a more expensive later. We can only guess, eh? Maybe they are just lousy developers, you never know, eh? <laughs> but the thing is, it's not my favorite medium because I'm quite of an introvert. But what I really liked there is that it was like people are having fun and experimenting and, and it's like this playground. And that's, I, I really like that aspect because the, the rest of the internet is much more serious and more professional and influencers and they have to look perfect. And this is like, ooh, let's try it from our car and then I'll call different friends and it'll be cool. And it's not interesting to listen into, but there's a nice vibe to it. I don't know. And if it's going to be something, I think that this is the thing that's going to be important. The experimenting thing, the playground thing. Yeah. My first barrier for usage was that my feeling was that you need a lot of time to actually use it. It's mm -hmm. on the spot. It's live, which is cool, of course. But if you want to listen into everything, I mean, you have to plan it into your calendar. It's not something that you can do while you're driving, like podcasts or when you're running. So in terms of time consumption, it's, it's just crazy. I don't have the bandwidth to look into everything that they put out there. And what you see now is that the innovative club that is using it is very excited. Eh? They're all over the place. The real question is the majority of the people, will they also get excited about it? Because if you compare it with other social networks, it's typically something that you do in between. But this is something that you have to make time for. Eh? This is instead of watching Netflix, you're going to be listening to Club Heist's house. So it's completely different than, uh, than any other and, social And you're, you're right about the linearity. I think that is just absurd. I mean, it's... I have to go back to when I was 17 and I remember that the A-team was on at 6.30 on Sunday evening. You know, that's just you know, a completely different century. So basically the conclusion is for rich people with a lot of time. That's interesting as a value proposition. <laughs> no, for rich people from the boomer generation who are used to looking at broadcast TV and not choosing when you want to see something. That's it. That's a great slogan. <laughs> or Stephen, you have teenage kids at home. 
You, they are probably spending. <laughs> sorry, I, not teenagers yet. No, ah. well, no. Well, the, our oldest son would disagree. They're nine and eleven, and uh, our oldest son Siba would argue that he is a teenager. But we don't consider him to be a teenager yet. So, how much time is he spending on TikTok? Zero. Right now. Yeah, zero. Zero wow, point okay. zero minutes. Wait, wait for another year and then we're going to talk again. And I think we're going to see the same thing with Clubhouse. It's another platform away from their parents where they can freely share stuff and uh, talk about everything they like without parents interfering. So I'm pretty sure it's going to take off in that age group pretty soon. All right, cool. We can have a next session on Clubhouse and uh, I'm definitely going to try it out and see what uh, what my experiences are. Let's talk about something else. In the last couple of weeks, there was a boom of hype around Bitcoin again. Many of us still have their Bitcoins and are very excited about that. But the boom started or the hype really kicked off when Elon Musk announced that he bought for 1.5 billion US dollars in Bitcoin. I think he announced that like two months after he actually did it, probably. Yeah, that's probably the strategy behind it. But I'm looking at Peter here, who is one of our experts in cryptocurrency. I wonder what the impact will be for the average market, Peter. Do you think that, you know, we've seen how Tesla invested in Bitcoins, but we also saw how MasterCard is going to allow payments with Bitcoins. And, and there's so much going on. Do you think this is a first step to becoming a mainstream, let's say, payment device? No, I think if you want my opinion on that, I think Bitcoin will probably never be a payment mechanism. It was originally designed to be so. If you recall, Bitcoin is not that old. So Bitcoin was created back in 2008. Late 2008, in October, there was a mystery man called Satoshi Nakamoto who introduced a white paper that was really the start of Bitcoin. And the title of that white paper was he wanted to build a completely decentralized payment system. So he really wanted to build something that had the capability to become a payment infrastructure. But the whole concept struggled to actually find a real reason to be. The original paper was called a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. And in the beginning, some people tried to use it as a payment mechanism. I mean, you know the famous story of somebody who paid 10,000 bitcoins for a pizza. But in the end, what happened is that the most interesting thing about Bitcoin, it's a cryptocurrency which is scarce. There will only be 21 million Bitcoins ever. I mean, that is the way that Bitcoin was created. So at this moment, there's about 18 million Bitcoin that are in operations, have been mined. But there is a scarcity. So there is a limited amount of Bitcoin and there will always be a limited amount of Bitcoin. And as a result, it wasn't actually used as a payment mechanism, but more and more it's being used as an investment. And in that sense, many people have said Bitcoin is like gold. I mean, gold is scarce. There's only a limited amount of gold on the planet. Gold has no inherent value. You can't eat gold. You can use it to pay, but who would ever go to a store with real gold to pay for something? It's an investment. And in that sense, I think Bitcoin is very, very similar. At this moment, the price of Bitcoin is around $50,000, which if you multiply you know, $50,000 times the 18 million, the total market cap of Bitcoin is about approximately $1 trillion. So the total collection of Bitcoin has a value of $1 trillion. Do you know, Stephen, what the total value of all the gold is on the planet? 
No idea. It's about seven trillion. So to give you an idea, the total amount of Bitcoin that's only been around since 2008 is now about one seventh of the total value of gold. But you have to put that into perspective. So, you know, there's seven trillion in gold on our planet. There's about 200 trillion in debt, and there's about 100 trillion in equity, so in stocks. So Bitcoin is still a very, very small fraction of that. But in my opinion, the real reason why Elon Musk bought 1.5 billion in Bitcoin is not because he wants to use it as exchange money for people buying Teslas with Bitcoin, but I think it's just an investment. That's my personal belief. Mm -hmm. And his timing was probably perfectly executed, don't you think? Perfectly executed, and of course it was released because he had to file it with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that came out. But in our household, it's our 17-year-old son who actually manages our cryptocurrency, and I've gotten one of the most exciting messages from my son when that news came about, because you know, the this price of Bitcoin just exploded at that moment. Yeah, that, so he I, made more money that day than he will with his first paycheck, probably. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Do any of you find it ironic that Elon Musk is investing in cryptocurrency, which is consuming more electricity than the entire annual energy consumption of the Netherlands? So it's not really... It's, yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely weird. absurd. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, for somebody who is so focused on you know, changing the fate of mobility and mm -hmm. you know, the fate of energy in general... It is ironic. I mean, Bitcoin is one of the early cryptocurrencies and the fact that it consumes so much energy and so much power is, is a relic of the past. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, talking about mobility, Tesla, energy, those kind of topics to make a bridge to the next topic that we want to discuss, uh, future of mobility. Of course, Tesla is playing a role in that. That is probably more significant than the investment in Bitcoins that they made. But it was a big month, I think, in terms of the future of mobility. Like, I, I was quite impressed that Jaguar said, we're going to only release electrical vehicles by 2025. We've seen the same thing by Ford. They said, we're going to stop producing traditional engines by 2030. I gave a talk to some German car manufacturers in the last couple of weeks, and they're all like, okay, between 2025 and 2030, we're going to have that tipping point. So it's interesting to see how this will go and how bold those statements will be. And the only thing that I'm still curious about and what I'm wondering is when will we have a car manufacturer that will look for a mobility solution? Uh, now, the only thing that they talk about, in my opinion, is the technology. It's about batteries. It's about electrical vehicles. It's about autonomous cars. Uh, Apple is talking with Hyundai to create a car, possibly it's also about, you know, it's going to be an autonomous vehicle, it's going to be an electrical vehicle. But more and more, I think what the market really needs are mobility solutions, where you figure out an efficient way to move from point A to point B, which will not necessarily be a car, but a combination of vehicles, services. And I wonder if that solution will come from one of the big car manufacturers, or if that will come from one of the big technology players, or by someone completely different. I gave a talk for Dieteren in Belgium two weeks ago or three weeks ago. And um, I was really amazed when they started to talk about their vision about this. And, and their goal is by 2023 or 2024 to be that mobility partner and to figure out ways how they can make sure that, you know, we can travel in more sustainable ways, in more efficient ways, in more personalized ways. 
But I'm still surprised that there's no big car manufacturer that looks for services that actually go beyond the vehicle. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that, to see that moment uh, show up one day. I would love, Stephen, to hear uh, Pascal's thought on that as well, because, I mean, we were back in China in 2018, and then we had Geely, we had Neo. They really talked about mobility yes. as something that was really there for the customer. I think that really struck me back then. Like, those are the companies, the Geely's, we only know them because they acquired Volvo. But the vision that we saw there, the world vision, the proactive vision that we saw there, starting from the consumer, I think that really struck me. But I would love to hear Pascal's vision on that as well. Well, the vision is quite straightforward. If you live in Beijing, I mean, you're stuck in traffic more than uh, than you can actually uh, move around. So it's, it's just a, a terrible situation. And the pollution is also a big problem. So in China, companies, all the car companies, but it's also driven by Didi, which is the sharing company. The Uber of China, who is really trying to work together with the car manufacturers to design the car of the future for mobility. And so they know what the customer needs because they have all these hundreds of thousands of taxis every second that are driving somewhere. And they can even predict how this is going to happen. And then they want to figure out what does this car need to be? How does it need to be designed in order to fit the mobility that we understand? And they're working together in, in partnerships. Now, when we were at NIO, uh, I think it was two years ago, they indeed started an electrical vehicle from scratch, the car of the future, and everything about connectivity was built inside. And connectivity means that you can also understand what's happening around you, and that, that helps you with mobility. So yes, I do believe China is looking at it from the user perspective much more than from the car perspective in general. Yeah, and I definitely think it's something we're not going to see from traditional car manufacturers in the future. I mean, if one car manufacturer pulls it off, it might be Tesla or General Motors, and that's only because they have bought Cruise. Um, it's definitely not going to be a traditional car manufacturer. I mean, look at the market right now. They are struggling so hard just with the software. Look what happened with Volkswagen for their ID3 electric vehicle. They had so much trouble with their software that they had to delay the launch of the new vehicle for what half a year something like that i mean these companies or the traditional car companies are just not ready for that yet and most likely the first one that is going to pull it off is definitely waymo i mean uh, the google affiliate it's, it's definitely going to be waymo um, they are thinking about mobility from a very different perspective uh, for example who's going to pay for mobility uh, google has it covered eh? uh, they expect a rest to pay for your mobility needs, for example, when you want to go out, they expect the cinema chain to pay for your tickets, for your mobility needs whenever you have to go to the movies. So they have a better solution and a better view, I think, on these things. But you never know. But um, traditional car manufacturers, it's going to be hard for them, very hard. Basically, the car becomes a data machine, no? Yeah, that's what uh, Neo told us. Eh? The more data you get, uh, the more they understand what the customer or the user wants from the car and you design the car around the data that or around the user, not uh, not the other way around. And what will the future of the car companies be then to partner up with Waymo and and, and organizations like that? Or, or how do you see their role, Joran? Most likely, yes. Uh, I, I think they will buy the technology. I mean, Google is never going to produce a car. Cruise isn't going to do that either. So they will sell the technology to uh, traditional car developers. And um, let's not forget, I mean, uh, somebody mentioned it already, I think, but Apple is also rumored to work on a car. So mm -hmm. uh, could be very interesting to follow that. 
with Hyundai and produce it in the Kia factory is what I, uh, what I saw. Peter, did you hear anything about that as an Apple uh, guru? <laughs> no, I think it would be very, very un-Apple to actually work with these companies to do that. I mean, Apple has traditionally always done everything themselves. So I'd be very surprised to see if a partnership like that would ever work. And I'm probably a little bit snobby, but I wouldn't match Apple up with Kia or Hyundai as yeah. a first reflection. But again, I may be snobby here. It reminds me, I, I read an article, uh, it was a while ago in the Financial Times, uh, where it was an interview with the CEO of uh, Peugeot. And uh, he's a really smart man, by the way. And in the article, he was talking about the Apple car. And he said, I would be willing to cooperate with Apple on a car. I mean, imagine that, Peugeot and Apple working together on a car. And I remember the famous line in the article that he said, but only if we could maintain the relationship with the end customer. And I could just picture the CEO of Peugeot in Air France, you know, flying Charles de Gaulle to San Francisco, taking you know, a limousine to Cupertino to talk to Tim Cook and say, but I want to have the relationship with the end customer. I don't think that's going to happen. So personally, but I think, yeah, I hear what's being said. I think I'm really curious what's gonna to happen to Uber after the pandemic. Of course, Uber was really hit. I mean, ride sharing was down 75% because you know people stayed home, but their capability to rebound is going to be very interesting. What is the mobility experience going to be? Uber Eats exploded, Uber Eats of course. Was, but Uber Eats pulled them through financially. I mean, they survived on Uber Eats, but I honestly believe that if the pandemic is going to be over and people are going to travel again, I think a lot of people are going to want to really go to a restaurant and probably drink something without having to drive home. So I personally think Uber is going to skyrocket. That's what I believe. And I can well, imagine if, uh, a lot of people who sold their cars during the pandemic in the US, I mean, or relocated. But in Texas, you need your car to charge your phone. So that's not going to happen there. <laughs> But if you look at China to understand how Uber will be in the future, you have to look at Didi. And they rebounded after the first quarter of COVID. Uh, and in China, everybody's back into the car. So there's no more pandemic there. So uh, yes, very different. Interesting also about Apple is uh, Xiaomi, the Apple clone, as they used to call it a long time ago, is also launching a new car. So everybody's going into that space. That's clear. Even the Japanese Sony is launching a new car. They are working on a new car. So it, it has become very easy to produce a car. So the traditional car manufacturers definitely have to look out for it. Of course, I mean, it still costs a lot of money to develop one, but uh, making one is cheap. Yeah, very exciting times in the car industry, lots of investments, lots of movement. But I want to talk about something else for a second. And um this podcast is recorded a few days after the Perseverance landed on Mars, but we are not going to talk about that. I want to talk about something else. I'm looking to Pascal because I've read this article that mentioned that China is opening up the largest telescope in the world, and they will open that telescope up for international scientists. So everyone in the science community will be able to use it. Can you explain us a little bit what happened there, Pascal? Yes, yeah, so the, the, the most um, detectable equipment in the world has gone undetected in the Western media, that actually the community of scientists are now invited by China to come to the province of Guizhou, 
Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever heard about the province of Guizhou. No. Or you've ever been there? <laughs> no, no, so. no, Pascal. Well, the answer is no. We've never been there. <laughs> okay. Never it's heard a, of it. It's fantastic. <laughs> we ordered something from the province, but you know, we don't know where it is. <laughs> but it's probably one of the most important provinces to remember when you ever go to China. <laughs> uh, and the reason is not because it's, uh, it's actually one of the poorest provinces. Uh, it's also for 92% a mountain province, so not too many people live there. But when you say not too many in China, you mean a few hundred million, 50 million, something like that. But the reality is that this is the biggest data center and cloud data centers in China for the whole country. And the reason is that this region is so mountainous that the temperature over the whole year is always around 16 degrees. So it's very stable, which is very good for cooling. And so they can do exactly what that but also for this topic you mentioned is this uh, telescope or this they invited actually the whole community from scientists worldwide to come to Guizhou to see this single antenna satellite. This is called FAST, F-A-S-T. It's a 500 meter, that's the literally fastest for 500 meter apertures, spher spherical <laughs> Oh, it's very difficult. Say Telescope. It in Chinese. Say Chinese. Yeah, English is <laughs> easy. Difficult. Anyway, it's 500 meters wide. It's 30 football fields long. Uh, so it's an enormous antenna, a telescope that you can only find in China. It's been built five years ago, and now they open it up. And the reason they opened it up could be many, many reasons. But one of the reasons I think they opened it up is because two weeks before that, so this was opened up on the 18th of December 2020. Two weeks before that, the second biggest satellite in the world, which is in Puerto Rico, 300 meters wide, which we all know from the James Bond movie GoldenEye from 1995, this actually collapsed. And so it collapsed just on the 3rd of December. And two weeks later, China thought, oh, this is our opportunity now to invite all the scientists and show everybody how we are now five to 10 times better than the US and Europe, because the biggest satellite in US and Europe is about 100 meters wide or diameter. And so they're going to invite all these researchers globally to investigate and research things about the universe. This is going to be about composition of gases, dark matter, exoplanets, the origin of the universe. This is all Chinese to me, but uh, it, it sounds cool. And ultimately, this satellite dish is listening the whole time. So when there's nobody researching or using it, it's just listening to the world out there. So looking for intelligent life out there somewhere. And because it's like 10 times better than what the US and Europe has, it can listen like 10 times further. So it can actually be maybe the first way to get in touch with life outside of our planet. And so maybe these Chinese will start uh, trying to get these aliens to come to China first if they ever come here. But uh, the interesting thing on this topic is that actually the international community is being invited because China is starting to change its attitude and is building the best infrastructure in the world, whether it's this telescope or 5G or whatever it is, and starting to ask the scientists, talent that they need for innovation that they want to come to China to do their top research. But there's also a space race going on. I mean, you were talking about Mars and all these things. There's things happening. China has gone to the dark side of the moon just last year. I think that sounds scary, yeah, Pascal, you know that. Uh, yeah, I think they did that because they don't want anybody to see what they're doing there because <laughs> you can't really see the dark side of the moon. But uh, they're talking about mining on the moon. So there's, there's interesting things uh, that are being discussed. 
They're also uh, building a space station, just like the International Space Station uh, between of Europe. They're building one themselves also. One of the coolest things that I think is happening in space is uh, a solar farm that China's building. So to basically have energy come from the sun and then beam it back to the world, of course, first to China. But the whole idea is that this is technology that's like 50 or longer. I mean, it's very old technology, but only China is, is, is actually going into that race. And then Mars, of course, they also have a space shuttle, which is called Tianwen-1, and or E in Chinese. And that is now going around Mars and will land in May a rover of their own. And are they going to land on the dark side of Mars then again? <laughs> well, I need to read up on that. I have no idea. But, but what's interesting is that actually there's been a Mars rover before. And so China will be closer to the US, the first one, than the, the second one that landed just now. The problem is that the US, NASA and the Chinese Space Agency are not working together. This is real decoupling. I mean, we're talking about decoupling always, but these guys are constantly decoupling. And so I don't know. We'll see. Now, one of the, I mean, big challenges, and I think that's one of the drivers of the space race as well, is to figure out and to discover new ways for us to live on other planets and to learn from things over there to make sure that we can safeguard this planet. And um, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but Bill Gates came out with a new book and he had some bold statements Joren, you have seen the book, you have read the book. And what was, in your opinion, the most bold statement from his pledge for a more sustainable planet? I absolutely was amazed by the fact that Bill Gates was actually saying that nuclear energy is going to be the future. I mean, I'm a geek. I'm fascinated by a lot of things. And you can barely call electricity innovation. But, uh, well, yet here we are talking about electricity and nuclear energy, which is also a couple of decades old right now. But still, I mean, Bill Gates is advocating for the use of nuclear energy because he says that basically we cannot reach net zero without nuclear energy. So Peter, you definitely already have an opinion about that because I saw you mentioning something. So you wanted to jump in? You're absolutely right. I mean, nuclear has been around for a long time, but I think one of the fundamental errors we made here in Western Europe is that we discarded nuclear way too early. And if you look at, and I'm sure Pascal has something to say about that, but if you look at China, I mean, the Chinese, they really saw not just the potential, but the necessity for nuclear in the next decades. And they kept investing. When I was studying to be an engineer, there was about three, 400 engineers that would start in the first year. And then one or two would study nuclear engineering. And they were seen as the weird kids who would then just go and guard an ancient nuclear plant. But the reality is we don't have any scientists anymore and no more knowledge and engineers. And that's why I think China is now going to use enormously that advantage in the next couple of years. Yeah, China is really big on nuclear because they are convinced that they cannot go carbon neutral by 2060, which is the promise that Xi Jinping made to the United Nations. And so in 2060, there would be about 28% of all the energy would come from nuclear. And then if you look at wind and, and solar, it's around 20%. And in hydro, it's 14%. But you need that nuclear. Otherwise, you never get to 100%, not in that time frame. And so they have now about 50 nuclear um, stations. So they, they power plants. And uh, they're going to double that in the next five years. And so, yeah, China will have the best nuclear scientists in the world. And this will be a problem for the West. 
Yeah, and exactly. Maybe, Pascal, you've heard about it, but uh, actually Bill Gates has invested in a company. It's called TerraPower. And they were going to build a nuclear power plant in China. But let's say that the president, who must not be named, blocked the technology from going out of the United States and stopped that because uh, the deal was already reached in 2015, as far as I remember. So they were going to build a new prototype nuclear reactor in China, but that didn't go through. So, mm. but that's the interesting part of this all. Eh? I already had written the obituary of nuclear fission reactors, to be honest, but... Weird. Yes, exactly, Julie. That's how weird I am, because uh, <laughs> I believe, or I thought that batteries and solar panels and wind turbines and even solar panels in the desert were going to solve our energy problem. But, um, well, I mean, this is not Vladimir Putin, right? a book. Eh? It's Bill Gates, so it definitely has some credibility attached to it. But I think, okay, he has credibility. The guy's obviously not an idiot, but the fact that he has invested, uh, he has founded, I think, even in 2006, this company, which is called, what, what is it? TerraPower? TerraPower, yes. And so he has... He has uh, Vested interest. Yes, he has he has a vested interest in it. So it's it's not exactly a neutral person either. Eh? Okay, it's not Putin, but yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I like his end approach to things. I mean, yes, he says we just need this a little longer to really pull the rest off. So he's also looking into the larger solution on how can we mm -hmm. solve the energy problem. So that makes him credible to me. I loved his statement about meat in the book. Did you see that? <laughs> when he said that people in rich countries, meaning US, Europe, and Australia, that all of us, as from today, we should switch to 100% vegan meat, like Impossible Burgers or Beyond Meat, because that will have the biggest impact on the whole climate discussion. And he says, okay, the quality is so-so, but we'll get used to the taste. But he was extremely bold there. Eh? We need to switch now and go to 100%. I, I love that statement, to be honest. And of course, instantly reminding me of that wonderful picture of him standing in front of a hamburger joint in Seattle, you know, uh, waiting for his burger. But I think he raises the right questions. And I think he might have a vested interest here and there, but I think the capability of somebody like him with his intelligence, his power, his reach and his influence to raise the right questions, I think at this moment it shows that we hardly have any mechanisms to discuss these things globally because the fact that we have no means of having that discussion on a planetary scale, I think is going to hurt us tremendously. But I think on the energy thing, if there is a future for Europe, and that might be a topic for a future debate, but if there is a future for Europe, this is one of the things we are going to have to get right. I mean, we saw just recently the total collapse of Texas, and it wasn't because they didn't have the means of producing electricity. It was transmission issues. It was the fact that because of deregulation and you know, the fact that it, there was no overarching strategy, there was a complete failure. And I think we have to be very careful in Europe that we don't repeat those mistakes. So if there is a chance for Europe, we have to take this energy and try and fix it. And I think Gates's book is a good way to actually think about a recipe. Another topic that is linked to it, uh, we have uh, synthetic meat and milk and everything like that. Everything is food related. But Laurence, you shared an article with me mm -hmm. where you talked about lab-grown wood. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
No, I can't. No, yes, I can, of course. <laughs> um, so we already knew how to grow meats in a lab and uh, create chicken wings and hamburgers. But now MIT researchers are trying to grow wood in a lab. And so what they do is this. They grow wood-like plant tissue from cells extracted from the leaves of zinnia plants, but without any need for soil or any need for sunlight. And so the aim would be to manufacture everything from furniture to even fibers for clothing. Now, they don't just want to simplify and speed up the production of wood, but they also want to tune the wood tissue to grow into more functional shapes like rectangular boards or even fully formed shapes like a table. And so I think that's a really fascinating development, but a lot of the articles around this are talking about how this would be a great solution to fight deforestation. And now the problem that I have with that is that the biggest reason of deforestation is not material use. It's, for instance, beef production that is the top driver of deforestation of the Amazon, as well as soybean production. That's so why I think, we need to eat synthetic meat, like Bill said. See, see, absolutely. So, like you said, I'm producing really tasty meat replacers might actually have a bigger impact here than creating lab-grown wood. But another big question is how long will it take for lab-grown wood to become more energy efficient than growing actual trees? Because trees are good for the environment and production, obviously, is always less so. So that's another really big question mark here. But I still think that this type of research into materials is really interesting for two reasons. Because material equals power and they can have a tremendous impact on world relations. Just think of oil or lithium And secondly, the extraction or production of material always has an impact on the environment. Like, again, lithium-ion batteries come with a huge environmental cost. So trying to find alternatives for non-sustainable materials is always great news. So in short, do I think that lab-grown wood will save the world? Well, not for now, but um, the amount of funding put into material research could one day bring us a lot closer to that goal. So I'm actually really curious to see the next developments in that market. So Laurence, just a question. Is it capable of being grown into not just different shapes, but also different textures as well? Because if you look at, for example, the costs of producing hardwood, which is mm -hmm. um, a pretty intense process, if they could find a way to do that, mm -hmm. and that could be scaled up, that could be actually a really interesting solution. Well, for now, it's an experiment, and it's really just with one type of material they are doing it, and they're using zinnias, which are actually not trees, but it's a kind of plant, and they're only experimenting with that. But I think, indeed, looking into other types of wood will surely be a next step. I mean, I remember the excitement we had a couple of years ago when 3D printers came out and mm -hmm. people said, oh, wow, we could print our own furniture. Well, maybe very soon you could just grow your own IKEA chairs in your own <laughs> greenhouse in the back. That'd be really cool. That would be really cool because I think that so many people already had marital problems trying to <laughs> assemble closets from IKEA. So that would be fantastic. Yes. Oh, I'm very good at it, Laurent. So no, no problem here, <laughs> as you can imagine. I doubt that. I'm an IKEA... <laughs> expert huh, guys but it's cool i imagine that anything that is made natural that you can make it in a lab i mean we're going all going to live up to that and we're going to see how that uh, that evolves i'm going to switch to julie for a second right now in uh, organizations one of the big issues are uh, burnouts are people that are demotivated people that are unhappy people that are sick and tired with the current situation 
And um, you've seen some interesting research there from Harvard that you wanted to share with us, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the upsides of a pandemic and making people work at home all over the globe is that people pay attention to what's happening to people. So, I mean, burnout is not a new topic. I wouldn't say it's an exciting topic, but it's been around for 50 years. But the first definition by the WHO actually was set in 2019. And honestly, I'm always turned off by articles of like self-complaining and burnout and the self-evident options. But this article from journalist Jennifer Moss and HBR indeed, um, I love that because it's not often that people address the issue from an organizational point of view, a systemic point of view. It's not just self-care that's going to solve the problems. Like you have a burnout, well, you go solve it is usually how it goes. Well, this was more like, no, we as organizations, we have a responsibility to look at our system to our organization and see how we're going to organize for that. And of course, COVID has spotlighted the issues in current organizations like crazy because people had to work at a distance. So all communications that were not clear, people that didn't feel safe or don't feel safe, uh, mistrust uh, in each other, um, bad communication. I mean, all things just got worse in terms of COVID, which makes it a very interesting time to also research that. And you also really see the difference in organizations that on the one hand, were already proactively working on their organizations as a nice place to be, as a place where they care about their people. HP, for example, their employees worldwide, I mean, there are a lot, but they all score over 90% of this is a place I like to be. I believe my leaders care about me and how I work and when I work because there are already systems in place. And of course, it's a learning journey, but I think it's a good sign that there's a systematic point of view to this and that companies are looking to this just not because the burnout is already the symptom but more like how can we make sure that this is a place that people love to be and it's not just a work-life thing because a lot of the time in your life you're at work so you better feel good being at work I think. One more point and it also refers to an article in MIT what does that mean for leadership because we're not going all back to the office in my opinion so would maybe be a question to you guys as well. Like, how do you see this evolving? Because in my perspective, the pyramid with one person at the top doing all the roles, virtual, face-to-face, uh, I mean, I think there are more modes to leadership in the future in a hybrid world. There's a big challenge, I think, uh, for leadership here, because as you mentioned, it's not really working from home, but it's living at work for a lot of people. And the whole idea of work-life balance is completely absurd right now because your work and life is just uh, two sides of the same coin. And what we've seen in research, I saw a research report this week from Microsoft where 30% of the people say that they have increased their working hours. For many people, commute has become the time for an additional Teams meeting or Zoom meeting. And uh, more than half of the people feel that now they have to be available 100% of the time. So there's a lot of pressure on people. A lot of people dreamt of working from home would be like a relaxing new kind of lifestyle. But for many people, the pressure has actually increased and informal moments have decreased between leadership and the teams. So I think the real question is not about technology and the real question is not where will we do our work, but the question is how will leaders coach the teams? How will leaders make sure 
that the connectivity between teams is highly efficient and performant and fun at the same time. So I think the, the whole concept of leadership and, and leadership by walking around was one of the hype terms, which is now completely gone. So I, I think that the whole study of what a good leader is all about and the research that has been done in the last few years will completely will have to be redone to discover what is needed to be a good leader these days and in, especially in the next few years. Leadership is going to be important and it's not just about technology, but there's this huge opportunity there that technology is also looking into because I know that Microsoft Teams integrated something, a functionality that would help companies monitor the well-being of their employees. And it's always, it has two sides, obviously. It's great because if people feel less good at work, then companies can see, okay, uh, Julie is not feeling good this week. Uh, maybe I can help her. But it's also continuously monitoring people, which might make them also a bit more scared. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, fascinating I think. Yeah, I thought it was a strange tool. The intentions are good, but it's it's probably typical by a technology company that they think that they can solve an emotional issue with some sort of new technological feature that you add in the software. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you're going to do an additional Teams meeting, but we want to check upon your emotional state by asking you a question. And intentions are good, but I don't think that goes to the core of the problem or to the core of the challenge here. Yes. Absolutely, Steve. I see it with my wife. She's working at a, a nice company, but she has to manage 20 people all working from home. So she has to check in on them, call them. I mean, it doesn't work. What, what she's doing is she's calling all day and checking in upon people and, and she doesn't get to know what they really do, what they are up to. And I think if we're thinking about how to lead, that a team doesn't work like that anymore. There's not one person sitting at home um, directing everybody and saying, you have to do this and you have to do that. And you have to trust your teams. So trust is definitely something that is always popping up when we're talking about these teams. But but also definitely, I mean, you have to make sure that they communicate with each other and, and solve problems directly instead of uh, relying on one person to solve them. Absolutely. And maybe to add on that, you, you should really share the article in, in the notes as well of the podcast, because the MIT article outlays like four different roles of a leader as well. You have like a conductor, which is more about the process and making sure that everything runs so that you don't have to call 20 people to say, hey, how are you and how are things running? There should be tools, processes, technologies that help you with that. And then secondly, you have a coaching role, which is more one-to-one, -one, like, how are you doing? How can we move forward? How can we go to the next step? So that's the next step of collaboration between people. And thirdly, you have the catalyst function, which is more like making sure that there's a culture between people. And that's something that we really need connection and face-to-face -face time back for. I mean, people are craving for it. So that's the beauty of the hybrid world that we will combine best of both worlds, I think. And unfortunately, you have the champion role, which is more also connection to the outside world, because it's not your just company box and be in there, but just how are you open to the world that is outside, be it clubhouse, be it listening to podcasts, be it network events, I don't care. But those four roles will have to be in one person of a leader. I think that will be a challenge. So I'm a big believer in not a one leader kind of thing, but more like how as a team can you be a circle that supports your organization? I think leadership should be more something like that. Maybe one comment I would like to give from a Chinese perspective uh, is that uh, the biggest cultural shock I had when I came back to Belgium after 20 years China is the fact that everybody separated private and business life. 
And in China, that just is one. And so as we talk about trust, we talk about culture, we talk about, I mean, your company is kind of your family as well in China. And so it's all very natural. Of course, they had like a few centuries to get used to this. We all had to do this in just one year time. And so I think we're still getting used to this and technology could help. But I think it's a cultural issue to get used to, to not having to make too much difference between private and business. Yeah, that's fascinating, Pascal. And maybe to add one more last point to this topic, it's also the role of the individual. I mean, I myself, I work here for 11 hours, I don't have a commute, and then I'm like, oh my God, it's six and I'm stopping. Wow, my day's early. And then I'm like, Julie, don't feel guilty. You've been here for 10 hours. Just don't be so stupid. It's just because you have more time at this desk that you really need the sort of discipline to say to yourself, hey, I'm doing something else right now, or I'm, I mean, it's enough for today and that's fine. So speaking up and... I love how April Rennie mentions that it's not growth mindset, but it's flux mindset. Just be aware that indeed they, these things work in life, go over in each other, and it's up to you to manage that situation as well. So I think the individual as well has the responsibility to manage its own life. Absolutely. Beautifully said. And maybe we should create our own commute when you're working from home and when you're done, just walk around uh, for 15, 20 minutes and take the time to disconnect with the office and then go back home and make sure that then it's a house and not a working space. And join your neighbors in a little traffic jam in the, in the garden. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> like a little polonaise, but then with 1.5 meters distance. Huh? That's what we want to do. That's how you survived COVID. Stephen, I just think you are referring to get a dog. I mean, right? That's the solution to all of your stress problems. Yeah, but you can also walk, walk without yeah. a dog. Huh? And, and then you, <laughs> you don't have to clean up the street while you're walking. Huh? So it also has advantages to walk without a dog. Great tips here today. You can also walk without a dog. Thanks, Steven. It's possible. <laughs> I've been doing it for a long time now. You know what I learned in this podcast yesterday? Wow. You can walk without a dog. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But anyhow, when you do walks, you can track your uh, steps, the uh, number of steps you take. Like I personally believe the worst thing that can happen in your life is when you go out for a walk and you walk for 15 kilometers and then you suddenly realize, I forgot my Apple Watch <laughs> and this is like a workout that never happened. I've, it's the worst thing that can happen. I mean, not in your life, but in terms of working out. And now, thank God, we have a new smartwatch that is about to come to the planet, Laurence. You've been looking into it. Facebook eventually thought, ah, oh, what are we missing? We also want to have a smartwatch. And what is your opinion about it, Laurence? Uh, I have many opinions, but wait, I'll start at the beginning. So uh, Facebook is reportedly working on a standalone Android smartwatch with health fitness and obviously messaging features. And it's really interesting to see how Facebook is dabbling in hardware again, seeing that it has not been great at that in the past years. Yes, there's the exception of the Oculus VR headsets, which are pretty successful, but they are also less notable endeavors, let's say like the video chat device Facebook portal and the Facebook phone, the HTC first. So why would Facebook be launching a smartwatch in a market that is pretty much saturated and where it has maybe little chance of ever beating its number one player, which is Apple? Well, obviously, it's about controlling the next computing platform after smartphones. So the next platform could be smartwatches, might be VR or AR headsets. It might even be brain-computer interfaces. So Facebook is pretty much betting on all of these. But smartwatches are 
especially interesting sources of information because they don't just offer behavioral and contextual data, but because they offer health data as well, which is, we all know, an exceptionally hot market these days. And it's not just body health being monitored. Just take the example of the Amazon Halo wearable that also tracks your uh, emotional state and well-being. So I can see why Facebook would find it useful to know how you feel as well as how you act. And another important reason uh, for working on its own smartwatch is that Facebook would no longer be at the mercy of third-party vendors for gathering user data. And that's especially relevant now that Apple is, for instance, reviewing its privacy policy, which will make it a lot harder for Facebook to track data and personalize advertising. And by the way, Apple is not the only tech company that is investigating how to offer users more privacy and more control, because uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is working on a project where users will be able to choose what they see on social media by picking out their own favorite recommendation algorithm. So I think that Facebook might be very unhappy, if not a bit scared about these types of evolutions. And I'm not sure if investing in hardware will be the big workaround that Facebook might be hoping for here. But that's just my theory. I think you're right. I think, honestly, it's been a long journey where software producers want to do something in hardware, mm -hmm. and it's almost always a failure. I mean, Microsoft has had a couple of those absolute disasters as well. Remember the Zune player? But I think uh, the number one reason why Facebook does it is because they are scared shitless mm -hmm. of Apple at the moment. Yeah. I mean, Apple is really putting the squeezes on Facebook. And if Apple wants to be the king of privacy, which they're setting up to be, I think they're going to make life for Facebook a living hell. So I, I really see it in that perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about collecting data. They are definitely going to lose the big amount of data they are gathering today. I mean, it's going to happen in the spring. Uh, that's when Apple is going to uh, roll out its new privacy mechanism on iPhones. So you can be sure. I mean, a lot of people will disable the tracking of apps on mm -hmm. their uh, iPhones. So, I mean, right now the option is already available, but you have to take into mind that right now it's on by default. And in the spring, it's going to be off by default. So that means that every app that wants to track its users is going to have to ask for permission. So Facebook is definitely going to do this for tracking reasons. Think about, I mean, the richness and the amount of data you can get out of a fitness watch. Yeah. I was just looking into the app of my fitness watch today and I mean, that thing knows everything about me. I mean, when I go to sleep, how much I work out, when I walk, where I walk, um, if I'm cycling, if I'm driving a car. And there's so much you can derive from that data. It's hard to imagine, but Apple can tell you if you're having a stroke or if you're having heart issues. Imagine if your Facebook watch can do the same and send you to the right doctor that, of course, has paid the right amount of money to be top <laughs> in your um, recommendation list. I mean, it's definitely, it, it makes so much sense. Yeah, but, but who it, will buy a Facebook watch? I mean, yeah. everyone I think that likes fitness trackers already has one probably, or if you don't have one, you have good alternatives with Fitbit. You have the Apple Watch that have a proven track record, trustworthy companies. If you... Look at Facebook. I mean, the issues they had with trust in the last couple of years, they've never been able to solve it. It seems like they're making it worse. And I personally was thinking, you know, if indeed Apple becomes the king of privacy, like Peter mentioned, 
how that will change user experience completely related to privacy issues. Like today, when you go to a website, every time you have to consent with the cookies, right? Next time that you look at one of those pop-ups, don't just click on consent, just look at how they are built and how they are created. And the user experience is completely made to make sure that you will push accept all and that you will not think about anything else because that's the easy way out. What if now Apple creates interfaces that the easy way out is to safeguard your privacy? And imagine that that has an impact on every device, every organization that wants to track your data, every platform that wants to track your data. That's going to change that world completely. Eh? Data ownership will be something that you can decide upon as a consumer. And the only way that consumers will grant you access to data is if you create value for them. And I think that this is the one thing that Facebook has not done in the last couple of years that's creating value for us. I mean, it's fun. You go through it, but the real value is for them and for the advertisers. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that will change in the next couple of months. Yeah, I agree. It's like really weird to see that like Apple is trying to see how it can be better for users and even Twitter. Jack Dorsey is looking how he could do it better. And then there's like Facebook seems to be the only one like, wow, we just want more data. Let's let's do a smartwatch and then take everything. I think it's weird that they don't seem to have understand that things are changing and, and their image is really bad, but they don't seem to understand that they need to do something different. They do just more of the same. But there was a rumor that there's an internal memo by the, the strategy team, the big shift, uh, where they said, okay, we need from now on start to create products and services that can be monetized, but where you don't have a need for consumer data to make a profitable product. So there's nothing tangible yet, mm -hmm. but I would be surprised if they're not thinking about it. I mean, they will see the danger, they see it coming. So I'm convinced that this is their key priority, but it's not that easy to turn around their entire business model in just a few months' time. But they just need to copy WeChat. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like a, an American waking up in the morning and saying, from now on, I'm going to be Chinese. It's like it's, a decision like that. It's kind of hard. I, I do realize that. But I mean... If you look at WeChat, where they make money is all the value-added services. It's those things that really add value to people's life every single moment. Do a payment or, or basically get through, buy a ticket for a cinema or, or get a car or whatever makes your life easier. That's where they make some money. Gaming is a big thing where they make money. So it's not the core product itself. And, and I'm sure that, that they'll but figure I, I it out. I think, Pascal, that ship has sailed for Facebook yes. in the sense that if you see the scrutiny they now have since December where the FTC wants to break them up because they're you know, connecting Instagram to Facebook, let alone if they would play an even more important role in your life and are the orchestrator you know, like WeChat, I think that is something which they could have done a few years ago, but I think that is now going to be just an absolute political nightmare. It's impossible for them. Absolutely. I mean, just look at WhatsApp business. They created the perfect replacement for WeChat and they never really took the time to make it really good and really valuable for the consumer. And I mean, it has been around for like four years, WhatsApp for business, something like that. Have you ever used it? Have We, we, we looked into it with Nexworks. I mean, value for us was zero. And that's the problem with Facebook right now. They really, like you say, Stephen, have to create an added value for the consumer. And um, it's not only Facebook. Eh? I think uh, 
Google right now is struggling with the same thing as well. I mean, they have created a tremendous amount of value over the past years, but more and more they are under fire as well, um, especially with, uh, for example, YouTube or um, their other service, Gmail, that is reading your emails to advertise. I mean, people are getting more strict with their privacy. At least that's my um, feeling about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think the next decade will be about data ownership and where you have tools to take your privacy back. And if people have the tools and they don't have to give up their convenience, they will look into that and Apple will play a crucial role there. But it's crazy to see how Facebook is also becoming more aggressive. Like if you see the fight that they have now in Australia with the local media there, where they just say from one day to another, guys, no more media links will be shared on Facebook because of a conflict with payments and royalties. I mean, they're not making friends. Huh? They're still not learning to make friends around the world. And that's going to just worsen their situation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Let's be honest, short time, it's definitely hurting the news publishers in Australia. But long term, this is going to hurt Facebook. They How are long not will going it take to before yeah. there's a new law in Australia where the government is protecting their own companies? And if they will have to choose sites, the government in Australia, it's clear which uh, site they will choose, I think. And it's also remarkable how Google has a very different reaction to that, that uh, Facebook is more like, ah, we'll do what we want anyway, and then Google is looking into how they can work together and maybe offer some money to some of the publishers. But it's a very different reaction than that Facebook is really... Well, Google was very clever. Eh? Laurence, Google basically did a deal with News Corp yeah. um, that wasn't an Australian deal. It was a global deal. Mm -hmm. eh? So I think the interesting negotiations that Google did as a counter offer are extremely interesting to watch. But this is something which has global repercussions. Mm -hmm. eh? So this is not just an Australian thing. And uh, Pascal, I saw that this is not just something that is happening with the American tech companies. I saw that ByteDance is now suing Tencent in China? Is, yes. that, is that comparable? What, what, what's going on there? Very much, uh, but uh, the driver is a little bit different, meaning that uh, for China, Biden has been uh, filing for a lawsuit uh, against Tencent just uh, on the 8th of February, so not too long ago, just two, three weeks ago. And this is really about uh, when you use WeChat, you can't share or watch TikTok videos on WeChat or Douyin in Chinese, the Chinese version. And so they're... Um, Filing this lawsuit has been accepted by the court in Beijing. And this is the very first time. And it's because this law, this anti-monopoly law, is, is very new. It it's came out in February and it was drafted in November. And we heard about it in November back then that um, Alibaba was uh, in an antitrust uh, investigation. I don't know if you remember that after the IPO and financial that went uh, bust. And then everybody in the media was talking about, yeah, the government is wanting to control these big tech giants and it's a fight between Beijing and Jack Ma and so on. And, and reality is that they've been building this for many, many years, because if you've been in China, in Techland, I mean, the fight is really bloody. I mean, Tencent and Alibaba are fighting a real war every time, which means that if you are in one ecosystem, they don't allow you to work in the other ecosystem. And that is, of course, not according to anti-monopoly laws uh, acceptable. So this new law is really to prevent controlling the market. Uh, also, a lot of price fixing that's happened and, and deals uh, that were happening under the radar between companies, and they want to get rid of all that so that the big tech guys don't abuse their position. And so it's more a problem between the tech guys 
then it's actually a problem for the society or consumers or, I mean, of course, they have the problems of it afterwards. But the reality is that the government is trying to take some real steps towards going into the same direction, the same problems as we have in the West. Uh, it's interesting that China is actually trying to take the lead in that as well. And we have to look at it. They believe, the government believes very strongly that this will fuel innovation. They believe that the problem now is that because of these monopolies, that a lot of companies are not able to become bigger companies and some companies get lazy. I mean, you wouldn't expect Tencent or Alibaba to become lazy, but they feel that some people, some companies don't get the opportunity they should get. And so they think that uh, it will fuel innovation big time and that will make them also more uh, self-sufficient from the rest of the world because they will have to then figure it out together. But it's quite interesting to see that it's it's all these tech companies now fighting each other with the laws. Before they were fighting with protection, now they're fighting with the laws. And even GM has sued Tencent just recently over a similar law in China. So interesting things to, to watch. The last thing maybe that's also cool there is that China, the government, is reaching out to the international community to make this law even better. I'm not so sure if uh, the U.S. wants to work on China's uh, anti-monopoly law, but uh, they're trying to figure out how to make something that would work globally in a way, because otherwise, if their laws are so different from other laws, then it will create problems when these companies go global as well. So it makes total sense. So did they set up a Facebook page to gather comments about this new law and uh, where we can where can we contribute? It was censored. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not a Facebook page, but uh, no, they are trying to reach out to other lawmakers in the world to see how to draft this. But it's in effect right now. So that really means that uh, anybody can now use this anti-monopoly law to file a lawsuit against each other. And this is going to happen. I think every week they're going to they're going to go through this. It's, uh, it's one of those paradoxes. Eh? If you look to the impact of the pandemic, the, the big technology companies have grown further, so they've become more powerful. Mm -hmm. And probably because of that, if we will look five, six, seven years from now, their power will probably be lower than today. I think it will be more decentralized than centralized because of all these evolutions with governments and legal initiatives. It's going to be really interesting to see how this tech landscape will look like in 2030 compared to 2020. Yeah, because 2020, if you look at the market, it's basically the same as in 2010. I don't think it's going to be the same in 2030 like it's right now. I think it's going to be completely different. Yeah, although in China, I do feel that the government doesn't see this as a problem that these companies are powerful. They just want to make sure that they're controllable. <laughs> But uh, powerful has an advantage because if you can do something with the government, then basically can also make change happen. And for example, alleviate poverty has been something that Alibaba and Tencent have been working on really hard. So I think it's about the balance. And I think the problem is in the U.S. that uh, the government doesn't decide the policy anymore. It's money that decides the policy. And that means that the tech guys and the people with a lot of money can decide what happens in Washington. In China, that would never be the case. And so there's maybe a shift in power <laughs> happening right now or a battle in power. But yeah, can money still uh, decide policy? That's the question in the future. What do you think, Pascal, really happened with Jack Ma in the last couple of months? Uh, you must know the real story. The question we all have. Come on, Pascal. We waited until this moment in the podcast, but now we cannot wait anymore. What happened with Jack Ma? Well, I, I called him last week and uh, he said that, uh, <laughs> no. What happened is, right, 
normal in Chinese context. He spoke out at a conference in October that he was basically saying that the bankers got it all wrong and the new world of fintech is completely different and they should listen to the technology companies because that's what consumers want, that's what the market wants, that's what the world needs. And so these regulations are just a hassle. And actually, he has a point. The only problem is that in China, you don't just go out and say that to regulators who their whole life is, is about regulating banks. And so I think he got the message very clear that uh, he had to uh, lay down for a while. And uh, I don't think uh, Jack Ma has been uh, haunted by the government uh, during these months. I think the real issue is that uh, he's been saying things which didn't help many people. I mean, think about the employees of uh, Ant Financial who are all going to become millionaires and suddenly they have to wait <laughs> or maybe not get that anymore. I mean, a lot, he made a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say enemies, but it's, it's close to people that were disappointed with what happened. So he had to, the best thing in China then is just to disappear for a while and then, <laughs> and then come up with a, a new story. Yes. Well, talking about the financial markets being disrupted, I, I want to go to our last topic of this month's episode. And I'm sure that Peter got really excited uh, when he was following the whole evolution of GameStop. I thought that it was 2010 all over again. Huh? In 2010, most of the people became really excited about the Arab Spring and said, ah, oh, technology will bring democracy to the world. And okay, that was a disappointment if we look back now. And now we have the same thing. Ah, these new platforms, they can create democracy and the big guys in Wall Street, they are going to lose their power and the mob will take over the stock market. Uh, I'm sure you got excited when you followed that, Peter. I, I got very excited, as you can imagine. I do believe it's a pivotal moment because I think the power of the crowd really manifested itself. And of course, it was crazy. I mean, if you follow the gain stock, it was just crazy. I, I mentioned our son and he got into the frenzy as well. So we, we lost a little bit of money there. But it was fascinating because I think he learned so much about the stock market, about the narrative, about manipulation, about who controls what. And I think the most fascinating thing is that all of a sudden, the bad guys on Wall Street, which are the big hedge funds, which would short a stock, they got hammered. And I think that was a big, big wake-up call. It was a wake-up call for the financial institutions, for the banks, for the shorters, for the hedge funds, also for the regulators. And I think if it showed one thing is that the whole idea of a stock market actually doesn't really work that well anymore in the age of networks and digital media. So the idea that we might have to rethink that, I think, is a fundamental thing that it brought up. There's a lot you can say, but one of the elements that I really like is that the idea of a long-term stock exchange was uh, suddenly back into the picture. And the long-term stock exchange basically says that if you now own a stock, you can do whatever you want. You can sell, you can you know, use your, your rights as a shareholder. But what if you would be able to figure out how long you've held a stock, and the longer you hold a stock, the more power you would have? And I really like that idea because I, in a previous life, put a company on the stock exchange myself. And if you get caught into manipulation, it's very difficult to escape that. The reality of a company isn't always reflected by the stock. 
But if you have people who believe in it and they are, have been with you for a long time and they actually have more capabilities to exercise their rights, that will be probably something that will be making more sense. And in today's age, something like blockchain, for example, could easily allow you to build a long-term stock exchange. So I think I love what happened. It was a complete crazy ride, but it shows that a lot of the instruments we had of the last century, like the stock exchange, just really don't work anymore. and We have to rethink it. And I think it was absolutely a wake-up call for the regulators as well. But do you think it will create a fundamental change in the way that the system works now? It could, it could, and I think we've seen it before. I don't like the idea of a shorter because a shorter really is somebody who fundamentally is only going to win if the company goes down. I just dislike that. And of course, what has happened is that somebody as powerful and as communicative as Elon Musk has proven in the past that he could really chase away the shorters because every time somebody would try to short his stock, he would actually rally up the troops and get a movement behind them, and the shorters would also basically wound up to be the guys that get hit on the nose. Today, nobody dares to even short Tesla anymore because of that. But I think fundamentally, I hope there is going to be something good that comes out of it. But you see the power of the crowd, and I think that is only going to intensify, and it means we have to readjust and rethink some fundamental mechanisms that just don't work anymore. Cool. Cool. Thanks for explaining that. I think we're through our topics, everyone. I don't think I've missed anything. Does anyone have some final words to say? I know that's always the annoying question if you say something like that. No? It sounds really solemn. When it comes to space travel, we're all disabled. So if we look into the future, I think we should just realize we should be humble and rethink the systems and work together for that. All right. Beautiful. Well, I want to thank all of you to join in in this first episode of Radar. I hope everyone enjoyed our first podcast. If you have any feedback, any thoughts on how we may improve this format, please let us know. And then thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.